Hello listeners, Andy Heiss here with a quick message from one of our sponsors. Are you a student looking to sell your art? Look no further than artbystudents.com. Their platform is specifically designed to help students showcase and sell their work to a wider audience. With artbystudents.com, you can easily create a profile, upload your art, and start selling in no time. Plus, their simple and secure payment system makes it easy for buyers to purchase your work. So check out artbystudents.com today to get started. That's artbystudents.com. Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Hi, Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast listeners. My name is Andy Heiss. And I'm Nick Petrella. In this episode, we're joined by Joseph Velazquez. He's an artist and printmaker and the founder of Drive-By Press. In addition to his personal artistic activities, Teaching and community engagement greatly influence his visual narratives. We'll link to Joseph's website and YouTube channel in the show notes so you can learn more about him and his printmaking techniques. I'd like to thank our friend Lee Garcia for introducing us to Joseph. Thanks for being on the podcast, Joseph. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Let's begin by having you tell us how you got started as a printmaker. Um, well, I've kind of peripherally have had printmaking kind of seep its way or kind of like throw some seeds down throughout my life with my grandfather being a music venue operator in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, and hosting nothing but Latino and uh, black groups at the time of segregation and such. And uh, by the time, of course, I came around, that was all gone, but there was boxes of uh, print media, uh, show posters, playbills and stuff. And then growing up uh, in Southern California, my aunts attended self-help graphics and learned about screen printing and kind of informed me that, but it wasn't until really later in life uh, and going to school in Texas uh, that uh, I began as a musician and playing in rock bands and making the uh, kind of like the DIY concert posters that look like, um, you know, ransom notes, Mm -hmm. going through uh, FedEx and copying and, and finding different ways to put the different letters and do that stuff until I got introduced into screen printing. Then while in college, I walked into the print lab, and at the time, I was an English major focusing on creative writing. And, um, you know, some of my English professors, they told me, like, hey, Joseph, uh, we've seen your drawings that you're doing to these stories. And, you know, perhaps you should, you know, consider going down and taking an art class because your pictures are a little bit more refined than your stories are. (laughs) And, you know, that hurt my feelings, but I I went down to the print lab and I seen this dude that kind of looked like me. I mean, we had the same kind of (laughs) Buddy Holly black glasses, um, you know, and he was sitting over there over a uh, printing press. And um, I said, hi, uh, what are you doing? 
And I seen him pull a print off of a block, off of what's called a matrix. And he said, uh, I'm, I'm printing. And I said, man, that is incredible. And he was like, you like that? And I said, yeah. And he said, here, you can have this. And he gave me a print. He gave me one of his woodblock prints. Hmm. And um, I was hooked. I love that idea of how um, he demystified the process and made it less precious. And I love that with printmaking is that it really democratized and made it accessible. And coming from my background and not really having fine art around and not really knowing what printmaking really, really was until I got to college, I was really captivated by that aspect of being a creator and being able to disseminate uh, with this number of, you know, prints that you can pull from something that you worked on, as opposed to being like a singular precious object, like a painting or a sculpture, right. that a print, you could really, you know, spread the love. Yeah. Didn't you do that, Andy? Or didn't you make posters when you were younger? Yeah, I, I'm just thinking, like, there's, yeah. a, I think it's interesting, a lot of folks that we've talked to on this podcast, and I think it, I might be wrong, but I think it's particularly uh, more prevalent in printmaking to have that sort of music DIY band background. Uh, you sort of learn how to do it out of necessity, I guess, um, and then translating that into and then taking that further. You know, and I, I, that's what I, was gonna, I wanted to follow up and ask you. Like, so can you talk about that? You know, playing in bands and that sort of thing in Southern California to then being creative writing major. Were you like writing songs, the lyrics, and that sort of thing? Is that what led to that, or? Yeah, exactly. It okay. started off as, as, you know, the lyrics. And I really love the idea of uh, writing a narrative and kind of storytelling uh, lyrically. And, you know, playing music was great. Uh, I was self-taught for the most part. Um, and, you know, the bands that I played with, uh, the stuff that I learned, whether it was touring or some of the playing that we did in Austin, um, it really set the groundwork later for me um, entrepreneur-wise with what I did with Drive-By Press, and it really taught me something because, you know, back in the day when you were in a, a college indie rock band, we would send our demo tape or CD to the local, you know, college stations, and you had to do things that make it stand out, and so whether it be like, you know, cutting a leno block to create a stamp to print it on condoms that we would send to the radio stations or matchbooks or whatever we could do to make it stand out. So the, you know, the program manager would see it and play it. And, and I would include prints in there. I would include posters or a T-shirt or a bumper sticker, a koozie, yeah. something, you know, to, to try to get some payola to get them to listen to <laughs> our, uh, our jams and stuff. And I, I really love the idea of the collaboration of this kind of like uh, the synergistic kind of abilities of being in a collaborative like a band of yeah. like, you know, um, and I played with some musicians that were like way more accomplished than me. So you talk about having imposter syndrome, <laughs> you know, it was something that I suffered deeply. And, you know, I little by little, I became more captivated by making uh, the posters. And then other bands started noticing too and be like, yo, will you make us our merch? Will you do this? And yeah. You know, the, the the kind of attention that we got musically was super fun. Uh, we made uh, some nominal success when we got to play. Uh, and this was like, uh, I'm going to date myself here, but I think it was 1997, 98. We got to play the third stage at Lollapalooza. Nice. And nice. 
um, you know, I got to meet uh, Joey Ramone, and that's whenever like Soundgarden was like doing that, and we were nobody, but it was so cool. I mean, I was a rhythm guitarist because you know that's it's pretty easy. I was just holding it down, hiding behind our guitarist, and you know, and, and me and the drummer and the bassist, you know, we were besties, and so you know they helped me like toe the line of that, but. You know, collaborative like that, the way it teaches you to not really be attached to something, there's something really special about that synergistic lifting creatively that um, I kind of found a home with in printmaking in that same way in, in the studio and being able to share and not being so isolated or, you know, throw my sheet over the, the easel or like, don't look at what I'm working on. Um, having this is like, hey, I'm kind of workshopping this riff or this idea and having people throughout these uh, different ideas be able to come and help me kind of detach mm -hmm. from what I was working on creatively. And I think that uh, kind of it set the tone for me as a visual artist to not be uh, super, super possessive or, you know, uh, kind of detached from any type of criticism or critical type of, of response that allowed me to grow later on visually uh, by that foundation of what I learned musically. Well, I, I, I share a similar story with my students about – I have a picture of me and my, my friend sitting around our kitchen table cutting out like the inserts for the first album we were releasing in high school. And th this, the story that I use there is like now if somebody would have come to me and said, hey, this thing you're doing, it's kind of entrepreneurial. I would have been like, I have no idea what you're talking about. This is just, this is just what you do as an as a artist, musician, somebody in a band. So I'm curious, like – were you thinking about it in those terms at that point or, you know, just later in life we put labels on things that we were doing? Yeah, I, I would say in the beginning, no. I yeah. think that it was just like, well, how are we going to get, you know, right. well, what distinguishes us from anybody else? And so we were just trying to, you know, be a little bit punk rock about it and just like, hey, look at us and screamed louder than anybody else kind of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> right, for sure. And so you teach printmaking at uh, Florida Atlantic University. Um, how yes. has so how has your experience as an artist um, influenced your teaching? Um, are there any non-art techniques um, that you that you try to instill in your students? Yeah, I think that you know, with what I'm able to teach my students, uh, my experience with Drive-By Press really distinguishes uh, my instruction, uh, my pedagogy. Uh, and even my interaction with my students because of that background. I mean, um, in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin, when I went there, um, prior to going there, man, I got to say, like, I was, you know, Southern California kid, Texas kid. I had only seen the snow in uh, a Thomas Kincaid painting. And I thought, <laughs> oh, how beautiful, how romantic. Then I went to grad school there and I was like, oh, my God, it doesn't stop snowing. And then the snow just piles up for months and months and it looks like... Um, Oreo blizzard from Dairy Queen and it's just nasty and and you know and I'm there my first year of grad school and I'm with my buddy Greg and I'm like yo we need to do something man and you know over some old style and PBR we, we, we're talking about this idea of accessibility about the democratization of art and, and about printmaking and we came up with the idea to mobilize a press to put it in the back of a truck and we said hey what if we pose this to our thesis committee that we drive around the country and we go to, you know, 20 schools or so and we give lectures, demos and printmaking and um, we use that for our thesis and they bought it. They said, yeah. 
And so, you know, my knowledge and the history of being in the indie band as a kid, uh, we contacted the schools. We sent them a package. We sent them what we planned to do. We put some T-shirts in it. We put the bumper stickers. We put whatever we did with the inserts to get their attention and let them know we want to play. And, you know, we were in school, so we had this safety umbrella, uh, you know, and we were like, hey, we can take out an extra student loan. We'll be okay, maybe. (laughs) And uh, we literally sold our guitar amps, our guitars, and we bought a 2,000 pound press and we loaded up in the back of a truck and we outfitted it and we literally hit the road. And from that experience, um, you know, the 20 schools, this became like a what was supposed to be a 30 minute tour turned into uh, a eight year, 200,000 mile road trip that we did visiting over 250 colleges uh, and universities. And during that time, we would meet other artists, you know, we would meet other entrepreneurs, we would see people and they would see what we were doing, because the way that we funded the operation is we printed wood blocks on t-shirts. So we would literally cruise up, we would pull the press to the back of our truck, and we'd be in front of the student union. And, you know, they were to have different vendors, people out there selling essential oils, bracelets, some guy trying to get, you know, students to sign up for their first credit card, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then here is these two artists that are printing woodblocks live on T-shirts, having kids to go get their spaghetti stained T-shirt in the dorm, bring it back down for five bucks, you know, a handful of Skittles or a Chick-fil-A from their milk card and we'll swap you. And uh, that's how we funded the idea. And, you know, when we did that for so many schools, we it was like we would have some marketing reps from the credit card companies or from career day looking for interns. And they saw us. Uh, Matter of fact, when we were at LSU and we had these marketing reps come and they said, hey, could you guys do this for us over the summer? And Greg and I are like, no, no, the impetus of why we're doing this is the idea of, of, of accessibility. We're trying to bring the art to these different schools and we're trying to bring it to the people where uh, it kind of recontextualizes the experience outside of a studio right. uh, because we're taking it to the people. I mean, because we can go to a Walmart parking lot, yeah. we can go to the beach, we can go to places where you normally wouldn't encounter printmaking and people would see what we were doing and they're like, hey, did you guys invent this? <laughs> we'd be like, no. But the marketing reps saw us and then they slit this, you know, and they were like, well, hey, could you do this for us and over the summer? We're like, no, no, no. But, you know, they gave us a piece of paper and they showed us uh, how much they would pay. And they said that you'd be touring with these indie rock bands. And I was like, well, what indie rock bands? Uh-huh. And I was like, where there's this band in Ohio called uh, the Black Keys. And there's this <laughs> band from Austin, Texas called Spoon. And, you know, that was our playlist and our like iPod shuffle that we were yeah. listening to and the road. And we were like. Hell yeah, we can do yeah. this. <laughs> but when we, did that, <laughs> when we did that, we um, we had a change from what we were doing uh, uh, as you know autonomous yeah. uh, individual artists that we didn't have to answer to anybody about what we were making with our shirts. To all of a sudden, when you work for uh, a band, uh, a big company, you have to go through legal. You have to be set up as an LLC. You had to have. Mm. Uh, limited liability insurance, performer insurance, mm-hmm. uh, and entrepreneurially, it, it took us into a place where we hadn't learned any of this as artists. They don't teach you this stuff at art school. Right. And, you know, that's something that has really emerged now with social media 
is it's kind of the dissolution of the middleman mm-hmm. where you no longer need the, the the gallerist representation where you can sell your work straight off your platform of your social media. Right. And that's the same thing with, with music now, too. You know, yeah. you can produce your own and uh, print your own and like, boom, yeah. uh, you're right out there. And so that's one of the things that I share now with my students is hey, this is how you set up. This is how you distinguish yourself from other people. This is also how you protect yourself. Yeah. And now as a, as a teacher, I think I come with, you know, not only doing the creative work and working for clients, but also the business side on how to protect yourself, uh, things to look at for the risks, yeah. knowing about your ROIs and how much that you can invest. And, you know, whether taking out a small business loan and, uh, be concerned about other stuff than starting an LLC. So that's kind of my perspective as an instructor now, as a teacher now, that I bring uh, to the table uh, for my students. So surely you were the first person or the first two people to ask your advisors to do something like this. Did you have a proof of concept? You know, did you did you throw snow tires on the car and, and do it, you know, at <laughs> eight local schools, for instance, or did you just go, all right, we're going to go grab 200 schools? Well, we told them that it was going to be 13 schools to start. And this is the thing. This is the, this is where we were smart about it is that we had our committee members were two musicians. They were artists and music. One of them played in bands in Chicago. The other ones was still in a band from Oklahoma and played slide guitar and had a band called Thunder Snow at the time. And, uh, we were like, Hey, we want to do this. And they were like, all right, we'll give you one semester to prove that you can pull this off. And then when we came back to, you know, report on what we did, uh, we made a point to stop at as many, you know, uh, truck stops, Bucky's, Wall Drug, <laughs> whatever we could stop, the Corn Palace, to send a postcard. And we saw the postcards up on their doors. Oh, nice. So, yeah, like, you know, they loved what we were doing. Plus, I mean, we're going out and we're saying, hey, we're from this school and we represented the school. And so they really liked that attention that we were doing. We were like a walking marketing yeah. Uh, yeah. program for the, for the graduate program there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So in your bio, you state that having lived in many places around the U.S. shaped your expression. How so? Um, I think with that, it... it, it with this question, I, I think about myself as a BIPOC artist, as a Chicano growing up in Southern California. I was raised um, seeing like the murals, the the narratives, the tattoo culture, my cousins, and you know, like the like you know, a Southern California, Los Angeles, East LA, San Fernando Valley experience is what I had. Yeah. So the stuff that I was making there was kind of in the vernacular. That was what everybody was speaking. But then whenever I moved to Austin, Texas, there was still there wasn't that what was called Chicanismo. It was a little bit different. It was more Tejano. It was like a mm. Texican Mexican and not a Chicano, you know. And then living in Wisconsin, you know, when you have that being Latino in these different areas, it affected my Latin identity. Uh, where I had peoples in L.A., I had different peoples in Texas, and then I had no peoples in Wisconsin. And so, you know, in Wisconsin, it was almost like it was kind of exotic, and people were like, you know, what is this? And, like, they didn't know, and, it, you know, it led me to different narratives and be like, oh, man, I can play with this. I can fool people. I can do different <laughs> things. And, and then being a Latino in uh, Miami, 
it's so different here because there's not many Chicanos here. It's a whole different Latin identity. Hmm. And so from my experience, like that has all shaped my uh, experience as a uh, Latin artist. And um, even around like, um, you know, before I went to college, I was in the military and, you know, having that same <laughs> Latin identity when I was in the Middle East, like, you know, and we're in Egypt. And I would meet some people and they thought I was Persian. Yeah. And, you know, they would come up and they would speak to me, Farsi. And I'm like, dude, like, no, I'd speak, <laughs> re- respond in Spanish. And they were like, no, no, missed it. But then there was just like cultural connections where people would be doing double takes because of our appearance and stuff like that. And so little things like that and living in those different places really kind of um, informed my expression on how I would build up or share my visual narratives with that understanding that the perspective changes of your own experience based on where you're living at that time and who the audience uh, that their eyes are falling upon or what you're doing. So, yeah, that's been a big, big uh, influence on me. I have a follow-up question on that. So you'd mentioned you talk with your students about entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial things. Do you encourage them to travel and explore different locations and cultures? Absolutely. I think that that is so, so important. I, you know, I, I constantly tell my students that the older you get, the heavier your feet become. And it's not so easy with responsibility and everything else to pick up and travel like you can when you're young. Um, you know, you're also not as susceptible to influence the older you get, you know, and I tell my students, that's the beauty of teaching. And, um, I'm teaching in Florida, so I got to be careful here not to uh, <laughs> be sure. too wide-eyed or woke. But no, I'm just playing. I'm playing. We don't have anything that bad overseeing us. But uh, I had to throw that jab in where I can. Um, <laughs> I'm that, in Missouri, so. <laughs> <laughs> so so when I tell students, it's like, you know, when you're in college, when you're young, uh, this is the beauty of it is that you're at a time and a place in your life where you're afforded the opportunity to change your opinions on a daily basis based on the information that you learn and receive. And you can feel one way, but you learn something about it differently the next, and you could totally change your opinion. And I said, but that seems to, it happens less frequently the older you get. Uh, You become much more solid. Like, man, my dad is an immovable stone, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And he's setting his ways and it ain't happening. And I know at some point in time, the concrete that I have in my feet is going to be harder to lift. It's every dad. (laughs) Yeah. And a new pain in the back to go along with it when you wake up. Right. But (laughs) like you, you know, and so I try to impart that to my students that how important it is that when you leave, like I left from going somewhere sunny to going somewhere snowy. But how important that was, whether I was in grad school or in the military, is that I kind of like ejected myself out of my comfort zone and how that afforded me a greater opportunity to spread my wings wider and also not be so reliant upon having that proximity or the closeness for someone else to help or solve a problem is that when you're so far away from home, man, you got to do everything for yourself. Yeah, and so how important that is, and it makes you really, it strengthens your independence and your wherewithal and being able to problem solve and, and go through the different tasks you need to negotiate obstacles in life. And so I tell them that when you're young, you have got to seize the day for any type of travel. And especially as Americans, like we don't really have the ability, like seriously, man, when you're in Florida and you're going to go, you're going to go east 
it takes forever to get from Miami to like let's say Pensacola, man. That that drive is that's all the Northeast. Like you know, and you up into New York, you can go from there all the way across to somewhere in Ohio. You know, but you and you look at that on the map, and that's still like, man, we are still in Florida. But yeah, when you jump across Europe, state. you've already traveled through seven, eight, nine, ten different countries, yeah. and so because of our vastness as a nation. It kind of isolates our kind of geographically. It, it isolates our type of cultural experiences that we can engage, yeah. not just with language, but with just other cultural practices. So I tell students that you got to go while you can, mm. because life's responsibilities catch up with you, and it just gets harder to do that. So mm. absolutely, I, I use that same analogy about you can cross a variety of different cultures in a short amount of time in Europe or other continents and things, but not really not so much in. Uh, in the U.S. Absolutely. So we talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll frame, phrase the question this way. is: uh, So do you, do you see yourself or think of yourself as an entrepreneur now, as someone who seeks out or creates new opportunities? Uh, yeah, I would say that what, you know, what we did in the wake of Drive-By Press, like we, we had a storefront up in uh, Brooklyn, uh, before I became a professor at FAU. And we were still doing some touring, uh, but we were doing a lot more event marketing. Like we began doing uh, event marketing for um, Stoli Vodka, the NBA, Pepsi, Toyota. We started getting on with some big, big companies doing this type of you know live printing event marketing. We got to like take a printing press inside the Barclays Center printing for the New York Islanders uh, and that was crazy. And, um, you know, we're printing woodblocks on T-shirts with all these drunk hockey fans. And that was something. And then we're at the All-Star game for the NBA and we're, we're printing. Um, and I got to meet all like the, my NBA heroes. And this is like where the press got to take me. And, you know, and then when we're set up in our uh, brick and mortar and bed that we were hosting kind of lunch and learns. Mm -hmm. So we'd have like Fortune 500 companies come in and they would pay us and they would have their execs come in or their marketing teams would come in and they would live print with us and we'd kind of give them a creative outlet where they can get away from the computer screens and the keyboards and come in and be an expressive and try to learn something else. And so, you know, we took this idea as a different range out. And even though we're no longer touring at academic institutions, uh, we still get calls to do some big events to do that. And they're not as big and pronounced and they're not. Uh, but, you know, we'll still get even call for commissions uh, for doing, you know, different things for different execs. And yeah, we, we comply and do it. And I'll still do uh, some museums will call us and want to have a drive by press. If they have like a big Andy Warhol exhibition or printmaking exhibition and they want a live printing component with some type of educational programming that, you know, we provide uh, doing that. And so, you know, we're still functional uh, as an LLC. We still operate. Uh, we no longer have the drive-by press website anymore because we're not touring that same manner. Right. But in kind of like, you know, the reverberations of what we did in the past, we're still riding on those waves uh, still a bit. So I'm able to share that with my students to create some high-impact learning opportunities for them to show, right. hey, this is how you do that or, you know, this is what we're up to. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast. Mm-hmm.